episode of Crystal Myth with myself Leslie and my compadres Mark and Yaz. And this week we're back to our roots. Um, I'm not actually from Namibia but I'm just saying we're back to our roots because we're going back into the mythology side of things with our podcast. We've been delving into the world of paranormal in the last few ones haven't we? So this time we're going to look at culture. It's going to be Culture Club this this month, this week, month. Culture, culture Club. <laughs> no, we like yeah. Sorry, Mark, you might feel left out, but there was an actual Culture Club, wasn't there? Yes, it was. So, like my wee gang in London, we were called the Culture Club because every Sunday we would get together and go Sunday like, service. <laughs> we would do something cultural in London, so like go like see an exhibition or. Like see we pop up or something like that. We were just yeah, nice. yeah. Cause none of us were from London. We all like moved there from Scotland to our places, so we'd kind of get together and be cultural. So yeah, it's okay. We just met and had lunch. <laughs> I guess I was just a, a guest, and when we went to Paris, and it was the um, Culture Club International. Culture so. Club tour, and when we went to yeah. Tokyo, it's Culture Club on tour, which is quite cool. Um, yeah, most London. So. Speaking of countries, yeah. we're pretty much going all around the world, aren't we? Except is Morocco, I'm so ignorant, is, is Morocco in Africa? Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Like, right. <laughs> it's like a Sorry. from Egypt. It's in North Africa. Right. So where's N- Namibia? Is that North Africa or is, oh, let's just look it up because that's what I'm North focusing Africa. on. It's like Egypt, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia. Uh, I think that's all the ones that are on the top. Namibia. Shame on you. I you should Google this. Um, no, because I was looking at the myths. I couldn't. Uh, oh, it's Southwest Africa. Oh, there you go. Distinguished by the Namib, Namib, the Namib Desert along its Atlantic Ocean coast. Right? Oh, South African Botswana. Yeah. Right. So, um, and Mark's is what side of the continent are you on? It's still technically in Europe, but it's very, very, very far north it's one of the most northerly points of europe what's your one called again mark i'm going to spell valbard and jan mayan so weird sounds like an alien planet it does yeah. doesn't it i've just seen here that the official language of namibia is english i guess that means we invaded it yeah i thought the germans did but oh the germans fucked them up they tried to wipe out the indigenous people the bastards yeah i mean that's the whole of africa <sighs> speaks english french or most of it thinks French, isn't it? Yeah, most of it's French. Somali is, yeah. I think, Arabic, maybe. The whole of North Africa are, well, I consider us Arabs, but we have right. English and French mixed in. So, like, okay. 
French and like Algeria, Morocco. It's all French. That's because the French colonised them. Yeah, basically. But with like yeah. Algeria and Morocco, they were like proper colonised. So like that's pretty much their second mm. language. Um, whereas Egypt, we kick them all out. So. <laughs> kick them out, kick them out. Tried to, you know, after the countries of Africa. I read that um, the, Brit- the British tried to, this is fucked up, but I didn't know this until recently, that yeah. because I think it's something to do with Egyptians wanting to build a dam, but the British didn't want that or they wanted to trade with the Suez Canal or whatever. Mm. Aye, because they got independence, they wanted to do their own thing and the British didn't take too kindly to that. And they thought that they thought of this by cutting them off from the Nile by going to like Uganda, where the source where the Nile is, like the source of the Nile is, I think. And they were going to dam that so that there would be less water for the Nile to go to Egypt, so it would cut them off. Actually doing that already. So evil. It's already went down like a lot from what it used to be. They're already doing that. They're just doing it in secret so no one knows. It's really messed up and it's really bad. What, the British or Ugandans? I don't know who it is, but I'm assuming it's the British. But it's happening in Uganda. They're building a dam there and it's affecting the water that's coming down to Egypt, like through the dam. That's sacrilege. But um, I shall refrain from saying any bad things about Egypt. (laughs) Of course not. Nothing bad with the government ever happens there. No, of course not. <laughs> it's all jolly. Places in the world, it has a very good government. It's all <laughs> rainbows and gumdrop smiles over there. Yeah. Uh, unlike here, where recently the Tories voted to make corruption legal for some fucking reason. Yeah. Whatever. Um, anyway, I was looking at the wonderful place that is called Namibia. I find I've, I've always I've always found found like African tribes or just tribal people in general really fascinating because I feel like they're one of the few peoples left that have their own unique religion, you know, that haven't been corrupted by like missionaries coming over. Okay. I, 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 I find I find it really fascinating. I've always been fascinated by like their their pain or what their 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 culture, their what they do, what how they dress, their society, and the kind of masks and rituals they do and things like that. I find that really interesting. I've always thought being in a tribe would be quite quite nice because you're a f- big family and you all look after each other, and you don't really you're not like a slave to technology or anything. You're just like do you know what I mean? Like one with nature and Scotland. you live off the land. And people think that about the clans. There's generally people in England that with me. We're all clans oh. and there's guys don't even know what to I'm like, what? No, we're not all running around the hills and our kilts sleeping with the sheep. So what happened? I mean, I suppose um, the, clan system, the clan system in the Highlands of Scotland was a bit like that, as in you would stick with your clan you would have chieftains and tribal people have chieftains and they have like some of them have royals some of them just have what like elders like your elder would be your wise man or woman yeah uh, but it's i'll go on I'll, I'll speak i'll speak about yeah. a particular tribe which i think they're absolutely gorgeous people as well they're beautiful look looking the him i think they're called the himbi but i'll just weigh in with some seven fascinating myths and legends from namibia i think they're all really cool yeah, go for it. So this one I find really interesting. It, it It's called Fairy Circles in the Desert. Ooh. Now, it reminds me of like the fairy pools in the Isle of Skye. That's literally what I was just thinking of. Yeah, yeah and I've always wanted to, 
to visit the fairy pools. I've never been to the Isle of Skye and it just seems like this magical place. But unfortunately, it's basically mm. because Outlander, it's been kind of ruined by tourists. Mm. But I would like to think of myself as not a tourist because I'm native to Scotland. So, yeah. So mm. among the yeah, tourists in the country, so <sighs> I think yeah. do that enough. Um, so you, sh- you should get up to the fairy pools. They're really nice. I will get there one day, but it's just quite expensive to stay there because... Again, there's just so many people that visit. So among the many natural wonders of the Namibian desert are its fairy circles. They've got hundreds of circular patches scattered across barren land. And it does look strange. I'll send a picture to you. Um, Some claiming that they are footprints of God. So according to the oral myth of the Himba, which I'll go on to tell you about and describe. Here, I'll just, sorry guys, I know you're listening to this. And you won't see this picture, but I'm just sending it to Mark and Yaz so they can see what I'm talking about. If you've got your phones on you. Right. Oh, so, I thought you were sending it in the weird background that Leslie currently has up. And I was like, I can still only see balloons. No. <laughs> I thought it was going to pop up in one of the balloons. <laughs> it looks like weird, like, craters. Yeah, they look like sort of little craters with, like, rings of, like, grass around them. Like, or, like, um, vegetation. Yeah, yeah, so I can see why they would think that. But they also have another legend that another theory for the, the the Himba people was that an ancient dragon was living beneath the Earth's crust, Ooh. or currently is living underneath the Earth's crust. It burns the vegetation on the surface of the Earth by breathing fire onto it. Oh, I like that. Excuse me. Yeah, I like I like that. That's nice. Yeah, that's well better. So oh. then we get to the legend of I think it's Heitsi Ibeb. So Heiseb or Heitsi Ibeb. Um, he's a deity figure in the Himba tribe and it said he said or it that he doesn't really doesn't have a gender I don't think is said to have saved the world from a monster which had caught many travellers in its pit so there's a, like a demon that's just see I think this makes me laugh because in Scotland if you hang around in your pit that's basically your bed yeah yeah <laughs> get out your pit but according to oral tradition, the demon sat beside his pit, or to me that's a bet, and mocked anyone who passed by. So I just imagine this demon just like sort of chilling in his bed, taking the piss out of anyone that walks past his window or something. He doesn't like anyone that goes past him. It seems like something I would do, because I do that quite a lot. When I'm people watching, I tend to just mock them. You ever do that? No, just me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know because I'm not like a hundred percent sure what you mean by when you do it. Well, I mean, like sometimes if I'm maybe staying at a hotel or I'm at a pool or something, and I'm just watching people, and if I'm with David, I'll just take the piss out of people. Well, then yeah, uh-huh. no, I do. <laughs> do you know, know what that. I mean? If they're wearing stupid outfits or they look a bit weird, then I'll maybe comment on that or try and imagine a backstory about their life, which obviously I isn't true. But do you yeah. do that? <laughs> like in my head, I'll be like watching. People yeah. And- each other in my head I'm like what, what they're talking about exactly. and I'm practical, like day for them <laughs> it's actually, so, watching people they like they look interesting yeah but usually I'm quite mocking about it so just to make myself laugh so this so I can relate to this demon so what he would do is he challenged the passerbys to throw a stone at him and most of the time they did even though the stones would just bounce off his nuts he would then use this opportunity to catch the passerby off guard and throw them into his pit. He just wants them in his bed. <laughs> Can I just clarify for people that aren't Scottish that it's not as his head? Yeah, I'm sorry. 
No, that's why I laughed. I was like, I like that Leslie just full blown switched yeah. to what is a traditional Scottish story. <laughs> I feel, it's not, it's head. <laughs> I feel like these Namibians maybe would probably get on with a Scottish, I think. Yeah, I just think they are. I just feel like they're our twins. He, uh, where was I, right? So he would about he would get them in his pit and this Haseb eventually overpowered the demon and he saved the world in the process. So Haseb is also highly revered because he, the moon and the stars are said to have risen from his breast. He saved the oh, animal world. By removing lions nesting in trees and fish from the desert. So according to this, the fish didn't live in the sea. They were just gone about the <laughs> desert and lions were hanging about the trees. But you'd think that lions hanging about the trees would be better for animals because then they're not down on the ground hunting whatever's there. Yeah. And I really don't get that. That makes no sense. Unless he was saving the animal world by helping the lions come down from the trees and the fish who shouldn't have been in the desert were better suited to the, the water. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Oh, maybe they used to live in those wee craters, and that's where they used to live. Maybe. In the desert. And they actually had, like, wee, like, pools of water in them. I tell you what, I'm absolutely in love with these people. Um, So the grave of Hyseb is said to be in different locations. Either, and it doesn't even mention why he's got a grave, like, or it's got a grave, like, or how it died or whatever. It's just got a grave. And uh, it says... These graves are, oh, the graves are either along walkways or near water holes. The graves are called Hatsi Ibeb, the grave of Hyseb Adeti. Travellers have since then always placed stones and other offerings on the graves. That's kind of a Jewish kind of thing, isn't it? Anyone visiting these graves is expected to show respect and upon leaving, which this really amazed me, should never turn back. What, like look behind your shoulder? Kind of. Yeah, never, 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 just, never turn round again. <laughs> Don't ever turn left. <laughs> what? Wait, like you walk away and you just don't look like back behind you as you, you walk around. Turn, never turn back to the grave once you've visited oh, it. Fair enough. The legend of Makuru. So there's the Herero. Herero are a type of people who live in Namibia. They're, they're diff- very different from the, the, the Himba, but they're sort of more of a westernized version of the Himba. So they wear. Like they were influenced by the German missionaries that came there. So the women wear like really long sort of Victorian style gowns with big puff sleeves, but they're very colourful dresses. And they also wear, they also wear, which the missionaries didn't approve of because they've seen it as like sign of the devil, but because their lives are, they're so indebted to the cow. So it's a bit like ancient Egypt. The cow is what sustains them and keeps them alive. They worship the cow or they respect the cow by wearing a hat in the shape of horns, cow horns. Cool. Also a good one. I think that's awesome. So they still do that. So the Harambe, not Harambe, that's the gorilla that got killed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, what, what's he got to do with this? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, Harambe, R.I.P. And his wife. So the origin of men says that Makuru, so this is a god that they worship, Makuru, and his wife, Kamungarunga descended from the roots of a sacred tree known as the I don't want to sound right, I want to say Umbongo, but it's not. It's Umomboronga. <laughs> That's the name of the tree. Say it again, say it properly. Umom <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying it properly as in you know. Say it without laughing and thinking. You sound, about like, you sound it. like a fucking teacher. Say it again. That's why I laughed like you guys was like, say it again, say it properly. <laughs> <laughs> 
because I was like, all I could think of is umbongo juice. That's so all I, like, I can think about is umbongo juice. Think of it which is quite a race. Is that not a racist advert? Umbongo, umbongo, they drink it in the Congo. It was actually inaccurate. I don't think they do drink in bongo in the Congo. <laughs> I don't think so. That and Kiora. Kiora was proper racist. Oh, what was it a Jamaican crow or something? Yeah, oh, they were like blacked up crows. They blacked were... up crows, but black, crows are black. No, but they were like, like, <laughs> you know, they like black up white guys to make them look black. Yeah, I do know what black like, face is. <laughs> basically, but that, but with crows. It was like Jim, Jim, Jim crow. crow crows, if that makes sense. Right. Like, what about the Vitalite advert? Do you remember that? Oh, Vitalite, was that? No, it was a sun, sunflower. Yeah, was that reggae? Reggae? But was it an actual black guy that sang the song? Because you didn't see the person that sang it, what did you? If it was an actual black reggae artist, then it wasn't racist. But yeah, I get what you mean. If it was a white guy singing it, then... No, it was a sunflower. Okay. So the word for this tree is called Umum Barom Bonga. Very nice. Well done, spell it. <laughs> so it's like Umumbo Rom Bonga. I know yes. that sounds like a nonsense word, but I love it. The scientific name of the tree is Combretium imberbere, in, in but it's also commonly known as leadwood, literally meaning the tree of lead, because it's not got an ability to float on water. So if you're drowning or you need something to hold on to and that happens to float, well, it won't float on by because it doesn't float, <laughs> you'll just sink. While other, yeah, while other animals and tribes descend from common flowers and have crawled out of the earth, the Amunborombonga is revered as the father of life, and when the Herero come across these trees, they show respect to it by throwing twigs at its root. Oh, how's that showing respect? That sounds oh, like it's I'm not really sure. Can mm. you maybe figure out why that's a sign of respect? I don't know. They throw what at its roots? Twigs. Oh, twigs. Oh. This is why I find these people fascinating, because it's like so out, It's so alien to me. It's like I, I love it. I want to throw some twigs at a tree to show it some respect. Like most people think, oh, we'll hug the tree or something. Yeah. But they were like, throw some twigs at it. Yeah. Yeah. Eat twigs at I get what you mean. I like that. I don't know why that's their line of thought. That sounds weird, but kind of cool. So then right. we've got the Kauai and the elephant. The Kauai people from the Zambezi region of northeastern Namibia believe that elephants were originally human. Again, this is wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, I like that idea. <laughs> so their myths depict elephants as strong and wise chieftains and get this, police officers. So I'm immediately imagining an elephant with a fucking truncheon instead of a trunk and wearing a big like a siren on its head. Was <laughs> that a key? All cops are elephants. Yeah. No, shame for elephants. Like, I feel like an elephant could have been like a person and he just got really, 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 really old. And then he kind of transformed into this like cute old elephant, and okay. they just get to be old and wrinkly. But oh. are police officers that offensive? That elephants are no, what like no, but also sometimes yes. Okay, and one story: the elephant gets its nose stretched out after beating a hippo in a game of tug of war. In another story, the elephant gets its nose stretched after a fight with a crocodile. The crocodile story serves as a warning to people about an elephant's temper. I guess Not police. Well, well I yeah, I mean, we do need warnings about police's tempers, so it doesn't <laughs> All right, I've got two more. Oh, no, no, I've got three more stories, but they're all short, so 
I'll just whiz through them. So there's the mantis and the san. Mantis was the giver of life and the original giver of fire. The san do not regard the mantis as a god, but rather as a higher form of a human who represents the san's idea of an ideal person. So I'm guessing the san are like a different tribe of Namibia. They represented him well in their ancient rock art, which can still be seen across rocky and mountainous regions in Namibia. Mantis is said to, I just keep thinking of Guardians of the Galaxy, is said to have been brought by, brought the sand fire by snatching it, this is where it gets amazing, from the beneath an ostrich's wings. The ostrich <laughs> kept fire under its wings to prepare his food, which tasted so much better than anyone else's. The mantis Used to eating, yeah. <laughs> the, the mantis was used to eating his food raw, tricked the ostrich, and snatched the fire for himself. It is said that this humiliating loss is the reason why ostriches cannot fly, choosing opting to keep their wings pressed tight to preserve the little fire they have left. Oh, that's quite sad. Ostriches well, have fire under their wings. And then we've got the legend of the upside down tree. Legend has it that the baobab tree, which is one of my favourite trees ever, is also known as the upside down tree or ghost tree, got to look this way because of neglect and a lack of appreciation. This story really amuses me as well, just because it's so funny. (laughs) The baobab is said to have constantly compared how it looked to other trees and deemed its peers more attractive. So it was really insecure, this tree. Very insecure. It's always comparing itself to others. It's a bit like myself. After getting fed up with all its complaints and questions as to, as to why other trees were better looking, God picked the baobab up and replanted it upside down, leaving it unable to ever see its reflection in the nearby lake and complain again. Maybe because it was throwing twigs at it and the other trees were getting twigs and it wasn't. And that's why it felt realistic. It, it was just a, a fucking moaning bastard of a tree that's just never happy. But I love the Bobab trees. They're huge, big, weird looking things. They do look like upside down trees, I think. And then finally, we've got the Fish River Canyon. This place looks amazing. Like, you know how the you get the, the Grand Canyon? That's what most people think of when you see big canyons or the word canyon. But Namibia's got a Fish River Canyon. And it's also one of the top visited tourist attractions, and I'd certainly want to go. But many who visit it are unaware of the legend of how it came into being. According to the San people, a serpent named Kotain Kuru looked for refuge within the massive territory of the canyon. And while it it was escaping would-be captors, so something was chasing it, Kuru was so enormous that he was larger than a hippo. (laughs) I mean, hippos are big, but... I don't think it, it's bigger enough to carve a, a huge, massive canyon. But according to this, it was no. chased by hunters. He fled into the desert and began to burrow. That was how the canyon was formed. Cool. I like <laughs> Cool indeed. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. I really think there's there's got to be a lot more stories than that. But I'd be here all night, to be fair. But I love it so much. It's so good. So I'm going to talk about like my favourite tribe that I've looked into called the Himba people. Himba people. And like look at this girl, right? I'll send I'll I'll send a picture of you of this this sassy, beautiful goddess. Right. Okay. So here she is. Oh no, I'm not taking a picture of myself. <laughs> I'm not 
not the beautiful we goddess. We already know you're a sassy, beautiful goddess. Exactly. Right, there you go. Just, just so you can get an idea of how gorgeous these people are. So they look like they're like made from red clay. Yeah, our skin tone is absolutely beautiful. That's absolutely stunning. Something on her skin. Yeah, it is, and I'll explain. So the Himba are an indigenous people with an estimated population of about 50,000. So it's not a lot, probably thanks to the Germans that tried to wipe them out. But living in the Norman Namibia in the Kueni region, formerly uh, Kyoko land, and on the other side of the Kueni River in southern Angolia. So there's not a lot of them left. They are semi-nomadic as they have base homesteads where crops are cultivated, but they may have to move within the year depending on rainfall and where there's access to water. They are considered the last semi-nomadic people of Namibia. So they they predominantly predominantly livestock farmers. They breed fat-tailed sheep and goats, but they count their wealth in the number of their cattle. They also grow and and farm rain-fed crops such as maize and millet. The good life. Livestock are a major source of milk and meat for the Ovahimba. Their main diet is sour milk and maize porridge and sometimes plain hard porridge only. See, there again, Scottish people are yeah. famous for their porridge. I what? think me and the Himba people, I think I would fit right in. I love them. And they are also, their diet's also supplemented by cornmeal, chicken eggs, wild herbs and honey. Again, all things I like. Only occasionally opportunistically are livestock sold for cash. Non-farming businesses, wages and salaries, pensions and other cash remittances make up a very small portion of the Ovahimba's livelihood, which is gained chiefly from their work in conservancies, old age pensions from the government of Namibia. So they don't really care about that kind of shit. Uh, so their daily life. Women and girls tend to perform more labour-intensive work than men and boys do, such as carrying water to the village, earth and plastering the moping wood homes with a traditional mixture of red clay soil and cow they, they build stuff in that. They collect firewood, they attend the calabash vines used for producing and ensuring secure supply of soured milk. They cook and serve the meals, they're artisans, they make handy, they just do everything, they're just amazing. The responsibility for milking the cows and goats also lies with the women. Women and girls take care of the children and one woman or girl will take care of another woman's children. So they just all look after each other. The men's main tasks are just tending the livestock, farming, herding, where the men will often be away from the family home. They'll slaughter the animals, they'll do some construction and they hold council. What do you think? Very much, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I'm slightly confused that the men get to hold council because it's like the women have a finger in every pie and the men sometimes take notes <laughs> for the walk. Therefore, they get to be in charge of the council. So the um the, the, the members of a single extended family typical, they typically dwell in a homestead called an Onganda. It's a small family village consisting of a circular hamlet of huts and work shelters that surround an Okuruo, an Okuruo, it's a sacred ancestral fire. So they always have these fires that's like a sacred one. They have to keep lit at all times. And that's where they go and speak to their their gods or their ancestors. And a kraal for sacred livestock. Both the fire and the livestock are closely tied to their veneration of the dead. Love it. The sacred fire represent an ancestral protection and the sacred livestock allowing proper relations between human and ancestor. All good, right? So this is where I love it, right? So the clothing and hairstyles is so cool. So both the Himba men and women are accustomed to wearing traditional clothing that befits their living environment. I mean, it's a hot fucking country, so they're not going to wear a lot. Um, 
the hot semi-arid climate of their area and most occurrences that consist of simply of skirt-like clothing made from calf skins or sheepskin or increasingly from more modern textiles. So the women wear sandals made from cow skin while the men's are made from old car tires. Oh, that's that's weird. That's yeah, I mean, I random. don't think they would have old car tires. You know, no, that's why. That's <laughs> I guess that's your idea of the modernisation yeah. Whatever they find lying about, they probably just use that. See the picture you sent though. Like, see yeah. her hair looks like it's dipped in like mud or play-doh or something. It looks a bit. I don't know. Like it. Cause it's not like it's not like wet mud. It's almost like it's so they, they have depending on their status or social status. The women have different hairstyles. So do the men. Uh, and it reminds yeah. me of ancient Egypt a little bit in a way. Because the, uh, the the boys, uh, prepubescent boys, have one braided plate, plate, you know, plait, sorry, that goes down their, the back of their head. Um, where was I? I'll go back to where women. So women who have given birth, they wear a small backpack of skin attached to their traditional outfit. Skin? Skin, I guess. It just means, like, a bit of lever. Oh, right. Okay, okay. I don't know what I thought that meant. I was like... <laughs> I know, it's a bit weird. <laughs> Like that leather. Yeah. Hinva people, especially women, are famous for... Right, this is it. This is I'll explain why they've got that stuff on their face and their hair. They cover themselves with oh, jizz paste. I, I know, I shouldn't say jizz, but I think that's how you say it. A jizzy paste. A cosmetic okay. mixture of butter fat and ochre pigment. A jizzy okay. cleans the skin over long periods due to water scarcity and protects from the hot and dry climate of the cow colands as well as from insect bites. So it's quite clever. It gives them people's skin and their hair plates, plaits, a distinctive texture, style in orange or red tinge. So that's why they always look red or orange, because they've just covered themselves in that in that uh, yeah, pigment. It looks like mud. It looks like almost like Play-Doh-y. But yeah. like, oh, it's kind of cool, though. It's a gorgeous colour. It's absolutely it's beautiful. beautiful. It is, yeah. I really like it. It's often perfumed with an aromatic resin of the Omazumba shrub. The okay. Ojeze is considered foremost a highly, highly desirable aesthetic beauty cosmetic, symbolizing earth's rich red color and blood, the essence of life, and is consistent with the Ovahimba ideal of beauty. So from pubescence, boys continue to have one braided plate, while girls will have many Ojitsi textured hair plaits. Some arrange to veil the girl's face. So if they're unmarried and they're like a like an adolescent, you know, like maybe 12, 13 or something, and they're still virgins or whatever, they wear their braids over their face like a veil. And in daily practice, the plaits are often tied together and held back, parted from the face. Women who have been married for about a year or have a child wear an ornate headpiece called the arembe, sculptured from sheepskin with many streams of braided hair coloured and put in shape with the Aussie paste. Well, I think, again, they do it because they can't exactly wash their hair because they don't have water, a lot of water, so it keeps yeah. their hair good. So it keeps it kind of clean. Yeah. 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 Yeah, unmarried young men continue to wear one braided plait extending to the rear of the head, while married men wear a cap or head wrap and unbraided hair underneath. It's all about the hair. (laughs) Yes. In society. So widowed men will remove their cap or head wrap and expose the unbraided hair. The Ovahimba are also accustomed to use wood ash for hair cleansing due to water scarcity. Pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. 
really cool. Very interesting. Then there's their customary practices. The Overhimba are poly, po, polygamous. Do you know what that is, Mark? Is that where you can marry more than one man or woman? Yeah, so the average Himba man being a husband to two wives at the same time. They also practice early arranged marriages. I mean, to Westerners, this probably would seem a bit shit. Young Himba girls are married to male partners chosen by their fathers. This happens on the onset of puberty, which may mean that girls aged 10 or below are married off. This practice is illegal in Namibia, and even some over Himba contest it, but it's nevertheless widespread. Among the Himba people, it's customary as a rite of passage to circumcise boys before puberty. Upon marriage, a Himba boy is considered a man. A Himba girl is not considered a fully-fledged woman until she bears a child. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. I mean, fair enough. So the marriage is basically like your standard, typical tribal marriage where they would just exchange who's got the biggest amount of cows, things like that, you know, negotiate between the groom's family and the bride's father, you know, I'll give you a certain amount of cows and stuff like that. They coexist and interact with members of their country's other ethnic groups, but they generally just stick to their own tribes. Some of them do move to the city and like leave the tribe for various reasons. Because of the high desert climate in the region where they live and their seclusion from outside influence, the Ovahimba have managed to maintain and preserve much of their traditional lifestyle, which I'm happy about. Members live under a tribal structure based on bilateral descent that helps them live in one of the most extreme environments on Earth. See, I find this interesting. Under bilateral descent, every tribe member belongs to two clans, one through the father, a patrician called Oruzo, and another through the mother, a matrician called Ianda. Himba clans are led by the eldest male in the clan. Sons live with their father's clan, and when daughters marry, they go to live with the clan of their husband. However, inheritance of wealth does not follow patrician, but is determined by the matrician. That is, the son does not inherit his father's cattle, but his maternal uncles instead. So, along with the inheritance... Oh, okay. (laughs) So, you you would never ever inherit your father's side of things it would always be in your mother's side you would inherit stuff but then that's interesting because it's not even really like you're inheriting your mother's things you're inheriting your mother's brother's things but then if yeah. your mother's brother has a I child don't. they wouldn't inherit his things they'd inherit yeah. their mother's brother's things like that's yeah an interesting way to do things and then finally i'll just leave you with this so the the Ovahimba are a this is a religion which i find really fascinating the Ovahimba are a monotheistic people and they worship so they only worship one god, essentially. They they worship the god Mukuru, who I mentioned earlier, as well as their clan's ancestors. So they have ancestor reverence. Now, I think this is amazing. Mukuru only blesses. So he never ever curses. He would only ever bless you. But the ancestors can bless and curse. Each family has its... So, like, their god is only a benevolent god. He would never ever harm his people or punish them or anything like that. Not like, you know, the biblical gods of the Christianity religion or whatever, where he smites people and fucking things like that, turns people into pillars of salt for looking back. Makuru just loves everyone unconditionally and never punishes them. But he does leave it to... Yeah, I love Makuru. But he does leave it to the human's ancestors to dole out punishment, which I think is fair. Each family has its own sacred ancestral fire, which is kept by the firekeeper. The firekeeper approaches the sacred ancestral fire every seven to eight days in order to communicate with Mukuru and the ancestors on behalf of his family. 
Often, because Makuru is busy in a distant realm, the ancestors act as Makuru's representatives. The Ovahimba traditionally believe in Omiti, which some translate to mean witchcraft, but which others call black magic or bad medicine. Some Ovahimba believe that death is caused by Omiti, rather, or rather by someone using Omiti for malicious purposes. So it's like they, they think to, like, Mukata, or sorry, Mukuru could never allow them to have, like, death because he's such a nice god. It's the bad things that cause death, you know? So it's you know not I mean? the time has come and... Yeah, it's like, because like, of the black magic that kills them. Yeah. Do they still believe in, like, the asteroid? Well, yeah, because they believe in their ancestors and stuff. Like, they look after them. It's, um, <laughs> well, they think that the Amiti have the power to place bad thoughts in another's mind, so mental health, mm-hmm. or cause extraordinary events to happen, such as when a common illness becomes life-threatening. It's a bit like we were talking about last week about the ultimate evil. Is that That's their explanation for bad things happening, you know, like illness and that. They blame it on an evil. But users of a Amiti do not always attack their victim directly. Sometimes they target a relative or a loved one. Some Ovahimba will consult a traditional African diviner healer to reveal the reason behind an extraordinary event or the source of the Amiti. So, yeah, that's the uh, Ahimba people. I actually cool. love <laughs> And I thought this would interest Mark because they're going back to the Herero people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another tribe. <laughs> The, there was something about homosexuality in it where, yeah, here it is. So the Herero have a bilateral descent system. A person traces their heritage through both their father's lineage, or Oruzo, and their mother's lineage, Ianda, which is similar to the, the Himba people. Yeah. In the 1920s, Kurt Falk recorded in the archive for Menschenskunde, German guy, that the Ova Himba retained, so this is the Himba, the Himba people again, retained a medicine man or wizard status for homosexual men. Ooh. <laughs> specifically for homosexual men? So homosexual men were considered medicine men or wizards, which I think is oh. wonderful. <laughs> But then that's like, remember when we did our episode and I was talking about Hinduism and yeah. and they are traditionally not now because Christian influence kind of warped Yeah. That, traditionally, they were like, if you're gay, lesbian, trans, it means uh-huh. you're like sort of gods because you're yeah. either fully male or fully female. So that means mm. you're more godlike. So the guy said, he wrote, when I asked him if he was married, he winked at me slyly and the other natives laughed heartily and declared to me subsequently that he does not love women, but only men. He nonetheless enjoyed no low status in his tribe. Awesome. Awesome indeed. But do you know what, what and pisses me off and to go back to like British colonialism is that another thing I read was recently the was the all the countries that still have homosexuality as illegal was put in place because beforehand they were cool with it. They were like, well, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, but then all the Christian like the British people came over <laughs> and said, No, we can't have this. Yeah lest our men enjoy it themselves so we'll put a law against it and then obviously like later on we they became more liberal ourselves and eventually legalized homosexuality and now we frown upon those countries that, that still have forced, it as elite, that we basically forced them into. Oh, <laughs> so that's my story about namibia and that i enjoyed your story about namibia yeah thank you I really want to go there now. I want to meet the the um, Ohimba people. I think I would actually love to party with them and and share some porridge. And yeah, I love them. What sort of porridge recipes? 
Yeah. I'll show them how I make porridge. They can give me their recipe, rec pies. I was going to say for porridge. I'll tell them about my clan. Sure, they'd love it. Yeah, be quite nice. That'd be quite fun. I just want to, like, I've got red, I dye my hair red, and I I, I don't want to be appropriate in our culture, but I really want to take part in it. I want to cover myself in that ochre stuff, and I don't know. They probably think I was really fat or something, because I don't imagine they've got a lot of fat people running a bit of white. They probably laugh at me because I'm so white and big. They I don't feel... think you were cool because you're bigger than them and bigger yeah. than them. I think they'd be like, well, that's really interesting. The same way you would think. Yeah, I love their jewellery and that's how I love tribal jewellery. I just think it's so beautiful. And, you know, you used to make beaded jewellery and stuff. Yeah, it's not that I'm saying you're in an African tribe, but technically you are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your jewellery was lovely. I think you'd get on with them as well because you, you can do beaded like, necklaces and that. Yeah. You could swap that. It'd be pretty cool, actually. It'd be, I'd love meeting like, different people. Like, yeah. Like, I really want us all to go there together. And, yeah, I think it'd be lovely. But obviously we'd need a translator because obviously there'd be a, like a... Should I bring them some Mongongo to drink? <laughs> no. You're terrible. Um, <laughs> all right. Moving on to another African. Yeah. Because Morocco is in Africa, honestly. A place uh, that I'd like to go to. I'd yeah, like I'd to Morocco too. Although you have sold Namibia to me, I'd quite like to visit both. Oh, I'd like some hash. Hash trip between around Africa, quite awesome. Good African tour. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. like, so different as well. Like it was just, it was just amazing. I just love their. I just love the way they speak, and I think their their language is beautiful, and I think they've got such a beautiful way of talking. Like even like Nigerian accents and different African languages and accents. I just absolutely love it. Pretty cool. Really, really cool actually. So Morocco is quite interesting to read about. So Morocco is sort of very like the western edge of Africa, but the very very north of it. So it's like pretty much a few miles off of Europe. Um, mm-hmm. you can literally get ferry between like, Spain and stuff like that into Morocco. So the geography is that link between the two continents. So if you think about the culture that they have, is very very mixed because of all the different countries that came into Morocco okay. and all the was mixing into it so like um, but do they have like actual indigenous moroccan people that haven't been i was going to yeah, say corrupted yeah. i say corrupted but like mixed yeah corrupted was the first word that popped into my <laughs> sorry it sounds negative doesn't it like it sounds like a racist thing you know like a white supremacist thing would say but i didn't mean it like that right no, okay. I but um, um so like they've got their the native um like the berbers or like people hmm. of the desert you know, sort of like lads but then from back when there was like folklore coming around you had sub-saharan african jews you hmm. had romans you oh had yeah Phoenician, uh, and the arabs and the portuguese and the spanish and the french so you've got so many cultures actually mixing into their heritage so a lot of their sort of moroccan folklore Sounds like a lot of like the other stuff that we've always spoke about, like more like European stories. Oh. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about how a lot of like Greek mythology seems to have happened. Like anything that would have happened in a desert would have been more like Algeria, Morocco, like that kind of area. So there's a lot of like crossover between like Greek mythology, um, which was pretty cool to be honest. Like all their stories are very like they're very colourful. They're all about kind of like things like like love or jealousy or getting killed, like kind of the same as everything else. And then the more modern ones go in into more Islamic and Arabic 
kind of things where it's all about families and virtue and being like righteous. Mm. First kind of mythical person that I was reading about um, is called Aisha Kandisha. And um, she's basically this mythical person who, like, I don't know how to describe her. Basically, she's this, portrayed as this absolutely beautiful woman who has hoofed legs like a goat or like a... Legs like a goat! She got really Not hairy legs. I, I know. More on board than it was a second ago. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I this story sounds like so many of the ones that we're always talking about, where she's absolutely beautiful, but she's like mythical and magic and stuff. Did and she basically that kind of the deer lady. Yeah, I was thinking the Dano do the deer woman. Yeah, you did the deer woman. She had lovely deer legs. Uh huh. She's totally that, but she lures in men and kills them. So some people say that if you're like a lost hitchhiker or like a truck driver is out late, like basically don't go near any women because they might like well, seduce you and kill you. And she's obviously absolutely beautiful. There's other people that say that she, her origins more lie in that she apparently a long time ago, the port, when the Portuguese came to Morocco, they killed her family and her husband. So all that yeah. grief that she had basically turned into her like getting revenge now. That sounds um, exactly like, like the Deer Woman. It really does. Like, I mean, like, all their stories are really similar to everything we've ever spoke about. So like she basically the way to get her revenge was back then that when soldiers would come in, she would seduce the soldiers, like sleep with them and then kill them. And that was her way of getting revenge against the soldiers or against like, the people that killed her family. And now people like light candles and stuff for her as well. Like people still remember her. Oh, I'll light a candle for her in Morocco. Sounds like, like it's a wee shame. There's other stories where tell about her as well, where they believe that kind of came from a water source, like where she got her powers. So like the people more say that you would find her if you were like near the sea or the river at night. Like that's more likely where she's gonna like hunt. You know, if you want to call it hunting. But yeah, she seems like she's just got a very, like, sad story with her hoof feet. Apparently, if, if a woman sees her, then, like, that woman would get really, really ill. Or if that woman was pregnant, she'd actually miscarry her baby. Oh, so, that's not even, like the dear woman. She was all about helping women. Oh. Yeah, in that sense, that's all. But I think, again, because she lost her, if you're going with the story that she lost her family, she's just kind of getting revenge on everyone, really. Like, so, I, think, I still think it's a sad story. If you light a candle for her, would she spare your family or would she still go for you? I understand why people are lighting candles for her, but maybe. Maybe so it spares you or like her evil. Like if you sympathise with her, would she like ignore you and move on to someone else? Yeah, because then she doesn't need to get revenge against you. Mm. Um, and then there's this other story that I really, really like because I love these things. It's a bit of a Romeo and Juliet story. Um, oh, so nice. it's old story. Well, actually, it's not nice because it's tragic, isn't it? It's suicidal. Teens. Romeo and Juliet. Um, okay. And this is the Berbers, and like so they're actually called the Amazigh. So there's like the actual like the language that was spoken, like sort of in the mountains in Morocco. So this is basically a couple that were from. They're in the Atlas Mountains, and they're from like two different tribes that were there. And basically, the boy and the girl fall in love but they're not allowed to be together because they're from different tribes. Yeah. They're not allowed to be together. So again, you've got this forbidden love story that they're not allowed to get married. They're not allowed to be together. And they basically, there's different versions of the story at this point where they basically are so heartbroken that they cry and cry and cry and cry. 
And they they cry so much that they create the two lakes that are in the mountains, Islay and Tislet. And they cried so much that they created those lakes. And those when those lakes come together, that's them two coming together. Oh, um, coming together. They, they, um, so <laughs> they're both, they're, well, so they got to be together in death. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, don't ruin it, Liza. It's a cute story. Sorry, I know. Longer. My mind always goes to the sexual side of things. I can't help it. They're embracing together. together. As well. Yeah. Um, other versions of the story is that they cried so much that they created the lakes and then they they drowned themselves in the lakes so uh-huh. they could be together. They died. I want to imagine they turned into some nice fish and lived happily ever after as mere people in the lake. Today, because this supposedly happened, People then uh-huh. compared so bad because they basically killed themselves because they weren't allowed to get married that now there's a festival of marriage and oh. every year for the last three days of September loads of couples actually go there to get married. Um, oh. oh, that's nice. Those those lakes are now like a symbol of like love and bring people oh. together. Yeah, it's actually it's a shame, but it's like it's kind of cute as well, which I think that's quite so nice. Yeah, I like that. That's lovely. It's a bit like Gretna Gideon, where people go if they were forbidden to marry. Again, I have to put everything back to compare it to Scotland, but like, you know, the tradition of Gretna Green where people would elope or young people would elope because their families didn't approve of their marriage because usually people just marry for political reasons or wealth reasons rather than for love. So if they wanted to marry for love, they would just run away to Gretna Green because it was basically like the Las Vegas of its day where you could just go and get a quick marriage legally like an age one of our English teachers told us like that in England like the legal age to get married was 18 but Scotland was oh. 16 yeah that's oh, right. right yeah I didn't know that sure I thought it was just a way of getting like a, a quickie marriage you don't have to go and get like dispensation from the church or whatever you could just I think go get married there right. I think you did they did it over an anvil you're both right like you could get married over oh. an anvil and it could be a quickie wedding but also the legal age of getting married was and continues to be higher in England so it was for both those reasons that it was such a popular place to marry there you go that's quite cool like it yeah no I like that a lot have Um, you been to Morocco Yaz oh I've always wanted to go actually really I'd love to go and it's doable it's not like it's so far away like Namibia we could go there proper cheap like get really really cheap ah yeah you get really good deals I've seen really nice deals online and stuff that come up online (laughs) vouchers things like that but it does look amazing and and their spices and their foods like the tagines and everything Mm. Morocco cuisine's lovely the other things are into like the desert and like sleep in the desert and stuff I've maybe done that for one night I don't think I could do it for more than that I did that in Egypt is it I haven't even done that in Egypt (laughs) (laughs) I rode the camel across the desert in Egypt oh my god terrified of camels oh no I loved it I loved every minute of it it was so good my camel was awesome though it's called Mickey Mouse I hate it so much. A couple of other like pictures as well, which are quite cool. So one is um, called the cemetery mule. Um, the cemetery mule. Cemetery mule, like a like a donkey. Oh, a mule! Uh, sorry. Okay. And this one again from like the Berbers, the Amazigh people in the Atlas Mountains. And apparently, this is it's a she. It's actually it's not a he animal. It's actually a she. She comes across and she's absolutely terrifying looking. So to some like every tribe kind of has different versions of all these stories because it depends who's been telling them and how they spread around so some people see her as being this terrifying the beast and other people just see her as being this like donkey who's carrying heavy chains behind her some people think that she's half 
man, half human, kind of like you'd get like a centaur in Greek mythology. But the story is that um, she was originally a widowed woman and in Muslim culture anyway and in probably African culture and mm. like Arab culture, like when a woman is widowed, she has to like stay at home for like her, it's your waiting period. But it's just a mourning period for a few months. Well, right. Like, okay. So it's not forever. Right. That's fine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah, like you're given space to mourn that you right. should be at home. And... I think that's quite common in most cultures. Like even Christianity, there was mourning periods where you had to wear black and you weren't really allowed to so, socialize or have fun for a long time. It's literally that, that you should really stay yeah. at home. Sort of, yeah. Like, don't like, respect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this woman, during that period, she actually went out and she had an affair with another man before her mourning period was over. I just went to gasp, but in a way as though it was like family, friends and my mum was telling me. I don't know why. <laughs> it makes me think of that scene in Gone to the Wind when Scarlett O'Hara married some guy that she didn't love and he died in the war, in Civil War, and she was at a ball and she really wanted to dance, but she couldn't because she had to wear the widow's garb. Yeah, the widow's veil. If that's what it's called in English, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, she shouldn't be like going off with other guys, really. Mm-hmm. During the and she uh, ended up dancing with someone, and then it was a big scandal. Yeah, okay, sorry, scandal. She's proper, mm-hmm. like shocking. <laughs> so, I so she sleeps with this other guy, and that like angers the gods, and they change her appearance into this mule or whatever it is. Okay. Like, so during the day, she has to sleep with the dead. So she's like, that's why she's in cemeteries because she has to lie. Oh. And then when the sun sets, then she basically claws her way out of the grave, screaming in agony. And then she wanders around the graveyards with her chains. Bit harsh. (laughs) So she kills grave robbers. She lures men back to her grave to kind of pull them in with her as well. Some people think that she can shapeshift. So she could actually go like knocking on doors, like appearing like as a nice woman. But it's mostly like around graveyards so basically men shouldn't be walking around graveyards at night time because she might get them um, but yeah so she's been like cursed forever and yeah i suppose i like that the one thing that she does do is protect the dead bodies from body or okay. grave robbers that's nice yeah. yeah and then the last one i've got is this monster that's called bohanisha who actually mm-hmm. looks fine, so i've had to remove like the picture off my screen because it looks horrific send it uh, yeah send it that sounds amazing like i don't like it <laughs> Oh, I'll prob- if you don't like it I'll probably will yeah I feel like I'm going to love it actually give me nightmares I really don't like it I'm so confused now. but this is one of your typical um, monster that's made up to scare kids but yeah this is just like really scary looking like this would actually oh. get- okay yeah that is very fucking freaky <laughs> oh yeah that's really creepy <laughs> I don't like that. yeah I had to put off my screen because it's actually <laughs> actually you're right it's cursed I'm not looking at it <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely listen to my parents if I thought that was going to come get me. I wouldn't want to see that in the middle of the night. It's one of the oldest creatures in folklore, even like globally. It's really it does look quite old. old. Yeah, and it's kind of like an ogre. And this is what Moroccan kids are scared of. This is like the Moroccan boogeyman. The term Buchanesia basically means a man with a sack or a bag. Um, basically, the Moroccans would basically paint pictures of them that are really, really scary, like to keep their kids in line. And he's with like this horrible like humanoid figure that's well looks like that. that is and does he use a sack to yeah to steal children? children? Yeah, right, bad. He bags them up. Or then he's gonna kidnap you in his bag and take you away. Um, like a bad Santa. Yeah, proper like big one. Oh. <laughs> uh, 
lived in like dark areas and like caves and mountains. I genuinely was scared of Santa, Santa Claus, when I was wee. Like I, I couldn't sleep. Yes, I think the thought of a man with a big sack, like you're describing there, coming into my house, creeping about, really scared the shit out of me. Like I, I actually wouldn't be able to sleep because I, I was scared that I would like turn around, Santa would be standing there, and 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 I, and I always thought that I if you're a kid and you see Santa Claus, then that's a bad thing because he, he should never be seen by kids. So if you do spot him, he's gonna get me. Robin stories are quite cool. They seem like they're almost like because of the, where they came from, they're almost like the original mm. stories and then mixed in with European stories. Um, yeah. So if you think that if these people are like living in the mountains and stuff, they're not really like the stories are then like the travellers are going by and the stories will grow and develop as new travellers come and spread their stories and then go to like the next village. And Was it part of the silk, no, the space route or the space route? Uh, what is it called then? Uh, it's not the silk route or the space route. I was going but, to say the Silk Road, but I don't know. That's on the way to China, isn't it? I don't know if the, Morocco is part of the Silk Road. or Because spices were an expensive commodity back in medieval times and Roman times, I think. So Moroccan, Morocco was probably quite a big, busy hub of where everyone would go to trade yeah. in spices. Yeah, a lot of these stories kind of came up from like up in the mountains, like the nomads mm. and the Berbers. And then as the stories come down, then they would maybe be mixing in with yeah, like people mm-hmm. trading that. But they've got like a very strong sort of storytelling like culture, I guess. Kind of oral tradition. Yeah, uh-huh. right. Which I think is pretty cool. Because you imagine that sitting in the desert at night, like setting these kind of stories. <laughs> yeah, it's like sitting around the campfire telling ghost stories. Proper spooky though. What else you got to do? I mm-hmm. feel like the is so much spookier though. I think the desert would be quite a, a beautiful place, but also because it's so vast and empty, it would be quite a scary place as well. A bit yeah. like deep bodies of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's had like loads more stories as well. That's kind of the ones I looked at the yeah. most. Um, but yeah, cool. okay. So, Mark, what have you got for us with your alien land that we've never heard of before? Well, I think mine works quite well because, as the last one, because obviously, yeah, as you were saying that your place is so far, although it's in Africa, it's so like close to Europe, whereas the place I looked at is in Europe, but it's really far away from Europe. Oh, so, oh okay. I looked at Svalbard and Jan Mayen, which I'd never heard of until it was randomly generated last week. So Svalbard and Jan Mayen are, this also really confused me. So they're two islands, but they're one place. I've just Googled these now. They're like a way up. Yeah. So they're in Europe, but they're northeast of Greenland. Oh, Greenland's like vastly empty. Yes. As is Svalbard and Jan Mayen. And it says on the impression that they're a Judas section of Norway. So then it was like, all oh, right, about. Well, that explains the Valspar in part. Yeah. Well, they're not. I thought that I'd done it wrong because I was like, well, if they're jurisdictions of somewhere, surely that just means an extension of that country. But apparently they're not. Like, you need. If you have a Norwegian passport, that doesn't automatically grant you access to Svalbard and Jan Mayen because they're not part of Norway. Oh. It's like the Norwegian government kind of looks after it a bit. Oh, okay. Do they have their own government then? Yeah. Yeah, but it's like a wee mini government that kind of works under the Norwegian government. But it's because what's the population? Well, so Svalbard's population is two thousand six hundred and forty-two. Do you think everyone knows everyone's business? And that population are like research scientists. 
Ah, oh, okay. So, so the, like a population, the entire country has a population of just over 2,000, really. Do you know what this sounds like? It sounds like, see the, the place where they're in uh, 30 Days of Sun or 30 Days of Night, where it was That called? is exactly where it is. Oh, is that, is that? Uh-huh. Is that what it is? Oh, because when you were saying that, I was like, this sounds so familiar. Why did I have that name? And do they oh. have 30 Days of Night? Well, I'll get to that, but... Okay. <laughs> Sorry for like no, that's awesome. I don't know whether to go, but yes or but no. So just right. but so Yan Mayan has a population of zero. Is it that, that bad? Completely inhospitable. Not even animals. Polar bears. Yeah, they both have animals, so they oh. both polar bear, reindeer, walruses, and foxes, and then some other like smaller animals as well. But no human beings live on Yan Mayan. Occasionally, some of the scientists who work on Svalbard, Svalbard go over to Yan Mayan to conduct experiments, but they never stay for more than a few hours. And none of the natives of Svalbard ever really visit Yan Mayan. It's one of the most northernly inhabited areas in the world, which is why, because it's so northern, it's the place where they have periods of long days and long nights as you guys just said so during the summer both Svalbard and Jan Mayen have 24 hours of sunshine a day for the entirety of summer so just short of three months that would do man nothing during the winter and the winter there is just over four months long the oh sun god. never rises oh god so mm-hmm. good place for vampires yeah good place for vampires until you hit summer when yeah the then they can hits. go on holiday somewhere else <laughs> then they could go to the equivalent in like the South Pole is, you know? or they could go underground. I don't know, like hibernate. Yeah, I mean, and then come out in the winter. But then they wouldn't have a lot of food, so like they're feeding on scientists. They ate loads during winter, and then they hibernate during summer. All right, yeah. I feel like literally everything you're both saying. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I've got a point about that. I've got a point about that. So, all right. <laughs> what about what would they eat? So it's technically illegal to die. In Svalbard. What? I found there isn't actually mythology, it's just stuff that seems mythological, but it's true. So it was technically illegal to die in Svalbard because it's a desert, but it's a permafrost desert. So bodies don't decompose there. So if you die. That's like the bodies up in Everest. Yeah. So if you died there, even if you died in one of the towns, your body would never decompose. So they try as much as possible. They basically like don't have any hospice services in the island. If anybody's dying, they need to leave the island. And but then I quite hospice. like the idea of that being preserved and not rotten away and just looking like you're sleeping forever. Like so well, white. the reason that they gave for it is they said that if you have an infectious disease oh. not being detected and you die anywhere else in the world, you're then cremated or buried and it's fine. If you were to die there and you had an infection, oh, yeah. especially one that was undetected, because your body's perfectly <laughs> preserved, it, it would be like a time bomb. Contagious. Yeah, you'd be like a virus popsicle sort of thing. What if you just die there, but you can't be buried there? So, like, if I die in my sleep, and you so that's why die. technically it's it, the the law says it's illegal to die there, but that's only a technicality because actually, if you can't, if you don't know that you're going to die, you don't have to leave. So, if you die suddenly. Your body just has to be removed from the island immediately. So, just right. so it's more that you're, it's illegal to be buried there, really. Well, maybe it's more of illegal to leave bodies there than die there. Yeah, it's weird. It's not like when you, you die up the Himalayas and or, you know, the Pakistan, you know, the, the big mountains there, like K2 yeah. and all that, or Everest or the... Yeah, yeah. 
where it's too dangerous to go and retrieve the bodies. You just can't because everyone will die if you try. I guess they're quite flat. There's no mountainous areas. There are mountains. I'll get to them oh. as well. Oh, right. Um, well, there's, there's a mountain. In fact, no, I'll go to the mountain and then I'll come back to the other thing that you said, Leslie. So there's a mountain there and the mountain is a really important mountain because it's a permafrost mountain. So it's mm-hmm. not actually a mountain. It's just a big, massive pile of permafrost. And the reason that it's so important is because the scientists working there have stored seeds from almost every single plant in the Oh, I've heard of that place. Mm-hmm. The Ark. Yeah. I think it's called. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realise that's where it was. Because again, much like if you're if you die there, your body will never rot. All the seeds are perfectly preserved. And it's interesting. But then um, they could also store viruses there, couldn't they? They could in theory, yeah. I don't trust scientists. I think they're well. I do. Desert. There's actually hardly any plants that grow there, so less than ten percent of the islands have any plant life on them at all. And when I say you don't trust scientists, Mark, I do trust them because obviously, like we wouldn't have vaccines and that without scientists. But what I don't trust is scientists that live in remote locations where they could maybe be doing some shady shit that we don't know. Yeah, about. Sorry, they might turn into part mad of that scientists. Was that what Leslie was saying was, Ed and I are basically mad. And then Yaz went, yeah, what are they doing? They're, they're so <laughs> <laughs> No, but like, mine's like in Friends when, what's his face? Like, Phoebe's boyfriend and he goes to like, Minsk to like, oh, yeah. be in the snow. And you're like, what's he doing out there? Like, what do they all go to like, the North Pole to go do? I mean, yeah, the fact that there's like 500 odd of them. Um, yeah. A lot of them are there. So actually the majority of the 500 odd, 560, yes, so the majority of the 560 scientists that are working there in research purposes didn't arrive until after 2020 because a lot of mm. them are searching ways to stop global warming because it's such a cold place. It makes mm. it the sort of ideal conditions to do their experiments. But also there's lots of people that will go for experiments there because if you need to experiment on things like the effects of sunlight, it's the best place to go. If you need to study on the effects of darkness, it's the best place to go. If you need to study things that need to be preserved perfectly, it's the best place in the world to go. So it's kind of the best place in the world to carry out a whole heap of different scientific experiments. What experiments are they doing? <laughs> For what end? <laughs> I know I get the, I get maybe the global warming thing, but is it like the island of Dr. Moreau shit up there? What, what the fuck are they doing? Like the new are they going to try and make yeah? Are they going to try and make people more like? Are they going to try and make vampires? <laughs> are they going to try? And, are they going to try and make people like in, like um, resistant to deep cold, like extreme colds, so like, you could have super sunscreen? I mean, they're they're not experimenting mm. on people. I don't I don't even have any particularly interesting answer. It's just like no, they're experimenting on like melting points and. Extreme. <laughs> None of the stuff I read said they're trying to make like zombies or ice monsters. <laughs> ice zombies? <laughs> ice giants. They might be doing that, but you just don't know about it. Exactly. It would be the ideal place to make a zombie though, because the zombie wouldn't decompose. So. Yeah. I mean, if there's 500 of them out there, they must be doing something more than like. There's got to be one mental one amongst them that's, that's yeah. a mad scientist and wants to do rad shit. I kind of want I mean, that. Maybe. You know, um, like the film, the, um, the thing. It kind of makes me think of all the scientists that are there and then well, that they uncover. You should have a card for what I'm going to talk about. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> Val, Val, <laughs> Valvard is also, or should also be famous because it is the inspiration for a specific genre of horror slash science fiction. Oh. The first 
I've got this in quotation marks, scientists track for months and there is something out there story, oh. much like the thing, uh-huh. yeah. uh, was the 1937 novel Dark Matter, which was written by a Svalbardian about a group of scientists being picked off one by one by something other than human in a remote outpost in Svalbard. So wow. the first ever that sort of idea in it was written in Svalbard and based in Svalbard, and that's where that whole genre came from. I'm now just stopped talking because I'm like, what's this going to say next? <laughs> no, I feel like because I'm sitting here with my turban on that I'm like mystic Meg. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've genuinely not done any research in it. I'm just having to just. Sorry, I feel like I'm just. But, I mean, like literally I'm... everything you've said, I'm like, yep, story about that. <laughs> so I've got another law and then something that's not really a law, it's just kind of a rule. But again, I just think these are, again, none of this is mythology so far, but I just find it all really interesting. So well, another. I don't imagine word. it would be much mythology there because it's just recently been populated by mad scientists. Well, no, because the rest, there, there is a native population. So oh, the, okay. The 560 scientists, but then there's what 2,000. Oh, right. Just under 2,100. So I can't be bothered doing maths, but there's just mm-hmm. just over 2,000 people who are Svalbard Svalbard natives, who also interestingly didn't write this down when I was reading it, but I thought that was quite fascinating. It was saying that most people think that the natives are descendants of the Vikings or of um, Inuits that were exploring the waters around about where they were living but actually sort of oral stories that have been handed down combined with dna evidence that the norwegian government have been looking at suggests that pretty much the entire native population is all just from like random small crews of people that came from all around that area so like greenland further north further south that just do they look like new york basically yeah but oh, like, okay, because I was like, what kind of Viking people do they look? Do they look like tall, blonde, big brick shit houses, or are they like? No, which is why people were like, York oh, people? you would think that they were descended from Vikings because they did travel all over and it's such a remote place, but they don't look yeah. like Vikings. And they thought, well, maybe it was again small groups of Inuit people, but they mm. don't really look. Although Bjork does look like she may have Inuit ancestry, but they didn't look entirely Inuit. But they think now it's because basically just like a group like a family of Inuits might have landed there and a family of Vikings might have landed there and a family of Norwegians might have landed there so there was just a couple of tiny families that all didn't know each other that then stayed there and kind of interbred with one another and that's where this population's come from right okay there's a situation we've got here boom Yaz has a bit of a well Yaz just messaged me there saying need to call you back first pipe so that is quite the situation. That's quite spooky, actually, when you're talking about frozen wastelands yeah. and things. <laughs> She's got a burst pipe. Isn't that something that happens with ice and winter? Yeah. Weird. Okay, well, I guess hopefully she'll call back. I hope so. Um, the scientists, do they live separate from the... <laughs> acting like they don't like the indigenous people and they don't want to mix with them? Well... I will so- Oh, have I done this again? <laughs> you have. So most <laughs> of the scientists that go there live in within one of the major Svalbard towns. And uh, part of the reason for that is because one of the other laws is that by law you have to carry a firearm at all times if you're not staying in one of your settlements. So when the scientists do go to work in an outpost, if there was a team of, let's say, five scientists going to work in the outpost, all five of them have to be heavily armed at all times. Are they in danger? Because of the wild animals that live there. 
Oh, I thought you meant because of the indigenous people. <laughs> but also interestingly, because the sort of micro government, if you want, that uh-huh. runs don't want any of their people to be in danger. If you come into right. the town, you have to leave all of your guns and ammunition on the outside of any town. So you're not allowed any firearms in a town. Yeah. You're not allowed to leave a town without carrying firearms. Okay, so that's difficult. They have like a wee buffer zone where they can put their weapons. Basically, yeah. Does the town have shop? It does. Okay. Not I just anything overly complex. It's just kind of like little general stores and things like that. Can you visit it? As a tourist, or can you only dress up as a scientist to gain access? You can technically visit it as a tourist, but it's not really a touristy. I say it's not really a touristy place. I mean, I really want to go there, having read about it. It sounds mm. fun. One thing yeah. uh, wouldn't go along with any of our sensibilities. One of the other laws is that cats are illegal, so oh. you can go to jail for a really long time for taking a cat onto the island. And the reason is because there's some really rare Arctic birds that live there. Right? Yeah, cats would demolish them that's fair enough to bring a cat anywhere near the town you are allowed dogs though Uh, most houses there have a dog obviously most of them have like snow breed dogs so you are allowed dogs but no cats one of the things that i like because it's just polite but isn't a law it's just a tradition but one of their most important traditions is that you remove your shoes when you go indoors which i know sounds like all right that's also a tradition in Scotland, but it's when you mm-hmm. go indoors anywhere. So they have a general store and a museum on the island. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's here. Hi. Okay. They have a general store Sorry. and a museum on the island. And if you go into either of them, you'd expect to take your shoes off at the front door and put your slippers on, which you should be carrying with you because Moccasins. it's so disrespectful to wear your shoes indoors. Mm. I love slippers. To be fair, I've I mean, got like yeah, five different pairs slippers of slippers. Everywhere. I think people might I mean, think I'm mental the amount of slippers that I've got. Like, no, it's basically, I'm, I'm, I have to have a pair of slippers in every single room in my house. Sorry, yes. Let's think you're like an inner Arab or something, because it's totally really? not okay. Yeah, there's not okay to wear shoes indoors. Like, you're bringing all the crap outside indoors. Like, that's, that's okay. exactly why. And that I thought that when I was reading it. Yeah, oh, so yeah. That's very like. I remember when. I had my little like, tour of the mosque in first year of uni and the guy that was showing us around, one of the other people in the group had said, oh, why do you take your shoes off when you come into a mosque? And yeah, basically he was saying what you were just saying. He was like, well, oh, you take your shoes off when you go in anywhere. Like, why would you track muck and just... dirt on your fur? Yeah, no, that's what I feel like. I feel like it's, I think it's so wrong to wear your shoes indoors. Like, I always, the first thing I do when I come in my house is take off my shoes and put my slippers on, put my shoes away. Yeah, and I don't know why. Really like, when I was reading through the explanation of the rule about shoes, and I thought, again, exactly like you guys are saying, it makes perfect sense because they were like, for example, you wouldn't wear your shoes in the museum. And then the person interviewing one of the people from the island was like, but why wouldn't you wear your shoes in the museum? And he's like, because a museum's full of important artifacts. How disrespectful to wear something that tracks dirt. Yeah, I absolutely point. love yeah. that idea. Like, going to like Kelvin Grove Museum in Glasgow and taking off my shoes and putting some nice slippers on. Yeah. That's lovely. That would be so and think how quiet it would be nice, nice and quiet as well. You hear people clattering, clattering shoes, clopping along the ground. So that's me told you all of my random laws from there. I've got oh, two, okay. but neither of the myths are from Svalbard itself because they didn't really seem to have much mythology. But there's two other myths about Svalbard, which I found were interesting because I was reading people from mm-hmm. Svalbard's views on them in an article by somebody called, it wasn't an article actually, it was like his thesis dissertation piece, a guy called Matthew H. Barcold. So I was reading that and it was quite interesting. So one of them is uh, the myth of Fihoviat, 
So the Inuit people have a myth of Fihul Viak, which translates roughly as the ever-wandering one. And they believe that he's this kind of mythical figure who was, much like when we looked at our stories of immortals from all over the world, was cursed to walk the world forever. And again, much like when we looked at our stories of immortals, it's kind of a bit airy-fairy as to who cursed him and why. But he was cursed to wander the world forever. But they believe that he could take the form of what they called a water bear. Mm -hmm. And a water bear is believed... So this guy basically put in his essay that a water bear is believed to be basically a polar bear and it was when Inuit people who lived in areas that weren't inhabited by polar bears were encountering and talking about polar bears and he said the place that these tribes would have made these stories was the closest point in Greenland to Svalbard so they believed that basically sometimes very occasionally a polar bear would obviously have been swimming for ages would be knackered and would climb up out of the water acting like a sort of staggering drunk confused man and they were basically like, oh, there's Fihul Viat. He's shattered from all his wanting. <laughs> and he's taking the <laughs> beer that comes out of the water. And then the other know? one is um, the myth of Smearenburg, which is often called Blubber Town by a blogger. <laughs> I belong Blubber in Blubber Town. Town. I know it sounds like somewhere that like the Simpsons would go. <laughs> um, <laughs> by people who didn't live in Svalbard. So, or people who like to cry a lot. <laughs> Not that type of blubber, but I get what you mean. So there was a legend, according to this guy's uh, article, there was a legend everywhere but Svalbard in the 17th century. There was people all over the world who had heard of Smearenburg, the blubber town, which was uh, written about in lots of other cultures and countries' writings. And it was apparently a bustling metropolis with several churches, a world-class bakery, multiple casinos and uh, brothels to write home about. However... This place, Smearenburg, well, it does ex- it still exists and did exist uh, at its height. It had three houses and one blubber plant for a uh, whale and walrus blubber, and that was literally all it was. But for some reason, it ended up being this myth all over the world that if you travelled far enough north, you would land in Smearenburg, and it was this like amazing, like pleasure island. Ice, actually, it was just three houses <laughs> and a plant. But- but if you go to the houses, maybe they throw the, like, the best parties you've ever been to. Yeah, it was just like one of the houses was so good. It was the best everything ever. So, yeah, that's um, everything that I managed uh, to find out about. Scalbert. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know if you can see on the... Um, yeah, I know that, that you've changed, changed your opinion <laughs> in Svalbard. Yes. <laughs> For Yasmin's, I changed myself into like a Moroccan-type bar. And now I'm in the case. The soundscape is so weird. But, um, that was all really interesting. Country I've never heard of. Yeah, and yeah, yeah I really enjoyed researching it. Like as I messaged you guys earlier, I bit gutted when I was like, "Oh, they don't really have any mythology." But I quite like the wee myths that I found out that other people believed about them. But just the country itself, even their laws and stuff, I just think it they all make sense. But when you say them at first, it sounds like they're mythological. It sounds like they're totally made up. But it doesn't really part- sound like the kind of place where you would have a lot of fun, though, unless you find the blubber town. Yeah. Maybe it's sort of an ironic thing because there's not a lot to do. So yeah, imagine like imagine. in the 17th century, you were an adventurer and you were like, oh, yeah, fishing out with all your money to find blubber town. I wish to party. And then you get there and there's like literally nothing to do. But I also feel like, why do people stay there? Like, there's always people that are from really weird places. And I'm always like, why Why do you live there? Like, because it's their home. Why do you live where you live? 
Oh, that's one of the weird laws. You just uh-huh. one of the ones I read is it's illegal to be born in Svalbard. What? It's so risky because it's an ice desert. It's so risky for infants that if you're pregnant, your partner doesn't necessarily have to go with you, but you legally have to leave the island eight weeks before you give birth to try and avoid any premature labours. If you go into premature labour, you're rushed off with a frozen baby. ambulance. And then you're not allowed to return until the baby's old enough to survive there. Oh, wow. So, again, what would hold you to that kind of place? Yeah, that's like, true. Like this, I wasn't saying it. I mean, it's like, oh, my God. No, I, I get like, what you're saying. Yes, definitely. Why true. would you want to go there? Again, like, like understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know why you'd want to live there forever, but it would be really cool to visit. Yeah, no, I would visit it, but I wouldn't live there. Like, is there some secret? Maybe there's, like, some secret underground world there and they're actually having parties. The mad scientists. Actually, yeah, maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they do have, like, a massive underground rave or something with all the drugs you can have because there's fuck all else in it. Yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, the scientists have come up with some sort of mega icky. Yeah, like, because you can see. <laughs> We were born here, so we've always been here, and we're just going to stay here because, like, well, you weren't even born there. So, what's holding these people there? Yeah, technically, no one who lives there just now has been born there. And, like you said, they yeah. all just sort of came there from other places. So, it's not like. There must be something there that makes them come there. Just... Who knows? There must be a deeper secret to this place. You just don't know about we, it. We must go and find out and investigate. Yeah. We'll do that <laughs> next week for our episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should pick from the numbers. So yes, it's your turn this week. Uh, number six. Number six. <laughs> uh, number six is plants and non-animal cryptids. Say that again. Plant and other non-animal cryptids. Alright, okay. Huh. Wait. Um, so like tree. Like triffids. Yeah, like triffids or I don't know what weird would be another plants. Thing that was like non-animal, I suppose, like a rock that. Wait, what's a triffid? It's like a, a triffid is like a giant coniferous plant, like a Venus flytrap. Yeah, kind of like I'm that. Really, if you Google tri- um that would work as triffids. well, though, wouldn't it? Like triffids, giant Venus flytraps, mm. rocks that Ooh, can come to life and move, quite... statues that can come to life and move. Right. Okay, I get you. Like a golem thing. Yeah. So basically. We've done that already, though, the golem, but along those lines. Mm. Yeah, basically like any cryptid that isn't, uh, that you wouldn't describe as an animal. Organic? No. Okay, it is organic. Like a sort of vegan, a vegan cryptid. Yes, a vegan (laughs) cryptid. If you ate it, you you wouldn't be breaking any of the rules of veganism. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that's such a good way to think of it. If a plant is a person, are you still allowed to eat it as a vegan? Um, that's a good question. That's actually blown my mind down. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Why don't you ask your brother that question? Yeah, yeah see what he says. <laughs> so if his, if it, we used to have wee tiny bit of fly chops when we were little as well. Yeah, I'm going to ask him if a plant is, is like digesting a person. Does that mean if you ate it? Because, yeah. see, because actually, like, Islamically, we're not allowed to eat any animals that eat animals. Oh. So... Is this a plant that's eating an animal? <laughs> You're not going to be eating Venus flytraps, are you? <laughs> I feel like I need to find out the answer to this question. Yeah, it's really boggled my mind. It's really hard. I've never seen that film by um, Night Shyamalan where um, it was plants that were killing. That was a twist, sorry, if you've never seen it. Spoilers, but it's a shit film anyway. This one was called The Happening and everyone was suddenly like killing themselves and it turns out it was the plant. <laughs> 
I have seen them from Texas. It took me the a What were they doing? The plants were um, sort of emitting some sort of pheromone that made people want to kill themselves because they wanted to save themselves from humans or something. Yeah, it was. I, I don't think I finished it, to be honest. Cause it was yeah, that's like, shite. No, that <laughs> And I really like his films as well, but no, that was just not. It wasn't great. Um, but yeah, I'm for next week going to find the answer to this question as well. Okay, yeah, so the time. main question for next week, and if anyone out there wants to maybe answer, what the hell? So what is it? If a plant, like a Venus flytrap, people or animals, because there are rat-eating plants out there, no joke, if you then eat that as a vegan, or can exactly. you eat that as a vegan? Yeah. yeah. God, I don't know. I could put it in a simpler way. Does, is, does that become, yeah, vegan eligible for eating? <laughs> I'm going to find this out. <laughs> it's a circle of life. Oh, that's why you should be eating animals. Sorry, Mark. But like, we're going to become food for them eventually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what would you be putting fertilizer fed to this is what Mufasa said. Mufasa said that the antelope eat us, we can eat the antelope. Because right. we shit out whatever Oh, okay, we now we're getting mean. I thought you meant, like, if I don't have a chicken burger, one day a bunch of chickens will show up and eat me. I was like, <laughs> shit. The chickens are going to get revenge. Right, well, on that note, thanks for listening. And Good. we'll speak again next week. Bye. 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 Chris, Mess.